Welcome to Tech Talk, featuring the latest trends and topics in data and analytics for Fortune 1000 companies. Tech Talk is sponsored by Knowledgent, the data and analytics company. For more information, visit knowledgent.com. Episode 6 of Tech Talk features Ashish Harure, a certified Calibra Ranger, and John Connolly, a senior data governance professional, discussing standing up data governance programs. They talk about the upfront strategy, the Calibra platform as an example, and data governance program and tool considerations. So John, uh, Knowledgent is a partner with Calibra. So would you like to talk a little bit about our partnership with Calibra? I would, I would. Uh, we have had a partnership with Calibra. We're in our third year, actually. We do strategy for data governance. In fact, that, that many times uh, sort of tees up the Calibra implementation because you don't necessarily want to start with the tool say you know it would be nice to for a data governance organization to understand its, its operating model and what it what its objectives are in terms of being a data governance organization Libra is an excellent tool for uh, enabling uh, the data governance processes and assets that um, the client would like to manage right you know Calibra is a is an application that that sits in the middle of an ecosystem we have a lot of clients who already have metadata management tools and, and data governance tools and maybe data issue resolution management tools and, and, and other things, you know, maybe a, a metrics database. And Calibra literally tries to be the, the one-stop shop of data governance information. It will pull data from these tools. It's really meant uh, as a data stewardship platform. And instead of having stewards, which many times are are folks who are not that technical, although technical people do use Calibra. I mean, it's the, the frustrating thing for data stewards is that they don't like logging into multiple systems to get the, uh, you know, to track down data issues or to find the information they need. They'd rather go to a, a one-stop shop and, you know, have a user-friendly interface and get all the uh, information, uh, data quality issues, or whatever they're searching for in, in one place. So if I understand correctly, you're talking about Calibra as a data governance tool where it's a one-stop shop where you can do everything under the, the data governance umbrella. Correct. Okay. Um, so let's move on to implementation since you started talking about Calibra as a tool. So um, walk me through, you know, when people get, um, get started on the implementation, where do they typically start? So uh, that's, that's a good question. It's... Um, you know, it, it really is important to start with sort of a, a baseline understanding of what you're trying to govern. Like, what assets am I trying to govern? Am I governing data sharing agreements? Am I governing uh, data dictionaries? You know, data quality, you know, issue management, is that the primary focus? My business glossary, the focus. Um, and it really, you know, we see Kleber implemented across multiple industries. So, you know, it could be pharmaceuticals, it could be banking, it could be insurance, it could be, you know, uh, a retail, you know, organization. They all have data governance challenges and issues. So to get back to your question, the, 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 the way we start is, A, understand what are you trying to govern? What are the processes that you're trying to enable, right? We need to have that baseline understanding. We need to understand, understand if you have a data governance organization established or do you need help understanding or establishing that organization? Once that's in place, and then once, of course, you, uh, you know, sign an agreement with Calibra, you know, we can help stand up the development environment, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud. Uh, that's usually a couple weeks uh, 
in the cloud is preferred. It seems to be a much faster way, more efficient way to spin up the uh, environment. You mean but, the operating model? You're talking about the operating model, standing, standing up the operating model with Libra. Well, square the operating, you know, understand what the oper operating model is first on mm -hmm. paper. Right. Stand, you know, uh, stand up the development environment. But in terms of approaching configuration and development and implementation and all that, we usually break up the implementation into a couple of phases. Phase one is, is configuration of the data governance center, which is the main module. And what we're trying to do there is, you know, through a series of workshops and, and user meeting, meeting, we want to understand uh, the roles and responsibilities of the organization. We want to understand what the community structure is going to look like. So are you organizing, are you configuring Calibra to be sort of functionally oriented? Is it by line of business? You know, where the community structure is where your, your data stewards and, and, and other roles will live. Right. So, you're, so you're talking about in, you know, how the functional uh, structure is. So in an organization, if you have different lines of business and you need to govern the data accordingly, mm -hmm. then you set up uh, the operating model accordingly. Correct. Okay. The operating model, you know, it's, it's setting up the community structure is flexible. It's, you're, you're basically converting the operating model, which is on paper, into, you know, a configuration within the tool. And the, the raw materials for that is, you know, what's, what are the roles and responsibilities you know, are we organizing by line of business, functional area? You know, what is, you know, what's the uh, the asset model design look like? You know, so you're ultimately going to be managing data assets. So those assets need to be uh, stored within Calibra. So what does that design look like? You have business assets and technology assets and data assets. You know, what are the permissions? What are the entitlements that need to be configured? Um, user groups, uh, views and dashboards, you can configure Calibra to represent the data differently depending on maybe your role and responsibility. We also, in phase one, in addition to configuring the data governance center, we want to, if you already have data, um, you know, extracted from systems, maybe you've, maybe you've had data sitting in a data dictionary or maybe it's been in SharePoint or Lotus Notes or even in Excel, you know, once we model the tool, we want to try and do an initial load of data. Right, so, so you, see, you don't want to reinvent the wheel correct. and you want to ingest the data that is already available. Right. Right. We're not talking about full-blown integration right. just yet, but we're talking about once you've configured the tool, ingestion of you the, load an initial wave of data so you actually have something to use to, to manage with the tool. That's all part of phase one. So what would you say um, when you start with a phase two, which is slightly more mature, uh, as the organization has had opportunity to interact with Calibra. Mm -hmm. um, so what a typical phase two look like? Um, well, I should say that phase one, phase two, and, and future phases is sort of the, the crawl, walk, run model, right? So we want to phase one, configure the tool. Um, that can be a pretty quick process, uh, or it could take a little bit longer depending on what you're trying to load into the tool. But phase two is usually focused on, on workflow. So you have a number of data governance processes that you want to maybe automate. And these could be business glossary processes. They could be data catalog workflows. They could be policy management workflows. Um, anything data governance related that's done in a sort of a manual way uh, today can be automated within the tool. So the approach, whether it's one workflow or 10 workflows, is pretty much the same. You know, we like to... Um, then, you know, we usually have a, a four sprint release cycle. We try and keep each sprint to a, a couple of weeks. Sometimes it can be faster, sometimes it's longer. But
but in general, what we like to do in Sprint One, because what we want to do is, is is code some workflow and get it in front of the users as soon as possible. And if they're happy with it, they can start using it. And so then your then sprints we, are these are agile sprints that you have talked. They're about. very they're very agile, like in, in nature. We want to uh, create you know a viable product at the end of each sprint and something that's that's useful. But what we usually do, because we always get asked, you know, how long does it take to do this uh, workflow? Right. And it sort of, sort of is, uh, it depends. So in Sprint 1, what we want to do is create a workflow specification. And that workflow specification is going to capture, you know, through meetings and workshops, we're going to capture the high-level business requirements. What is the end-to-end process flow look like? You know, a day-in-the-life type of thing. Mm-hmm. Who starts the process? who's involved in approvals of, of the data asset, whatever you're trying to manage. If you if, if somebody rejects something, what's the rejection flow look like? What are what should be the error messages? If people get notified via email, who gets notified? When do they get notified? What's in those email messages? And then, you know, most workflows have some sort of progress score called an articulation score. And there are rules behind that. So we define the rules of what is what does it mean to be 10% versus 50% versus 100%. And additionally, if there are any uh, user interface design, if there is user interface design, we usually capture that in the workflow specification. What Sprint 1 is about defining the workflow spec. It's a light document. We get sign-off on it, so everybody's on the same page. Sprint 2 is usually coding the main flow. And, you know, we try and, you know, do that within 10 days. Totally workable flow with the real interface and and, and the actual logic, and it's meant to be totally usable, right? We usually have a, a demo at the end of that second sprint, and one or two things happen. They they like what they see and they want to move on to a, another workflow. Or normally, what happens is when they see the workflow in action, they want to elaborate the flow. So Got we, yeah. we you know we're flexible. We'll take whatever direction they want. Um, whenever you create a a new asset in the workflow, so let's just say we're creating a new business term. So the workflow is create a new business term. By the way, a lot of these uh, initial flows from Kleber, they do have a, a great inventory of out-of-the-box flows. But nine times out of ten, you know, what we end up having to do is elaborate those flows and change the UI and, and add logic. And, and, you know, we, we have to expand the flows to, to meet the, the new business requirements. Right. So th- those are customizing the out-of-the-box exactly. flows. Okay. Exactly. The out-of-the-box flows are great. You know, accelerator sort of a jump start. Um, but we usually do uh, extend them. All right. You know, Sprint 2 is coding the main flow. Sprint 3, people ask, why do we have a Sprint 3? It's important, right? When For every data asset you create, you need you probably want a post-approval modify of that asset. Now, that never comes up in the initial discussions, but we know from experience that's what they want. So if you're creating a new business term, once it's approved, you want to be able to modify that business term. So that's a secondary workflow that we almost always code for every asset. And then the fourth sprint is focused on testing, training, and deploying the software from uh, a QA environment to a production environment. We're usually working with uh, the users to learn the tool and to get ready for UAT. We, of course, organize an SIT before that. And uh, we also create a, a production deployment checklist because it's usually not a, a one or two step process to get code from the dev environment or the QA environment into production. Right. That's great, uh, great insight from uh, from experience. Also, there's this concept of user adoption. I mean, it's, we, we know from our experience that it's important to get the, the tools stood up properly and to get input from the users to make sure they're on board. But also to, you know, you don't want to roll out too many workflows 
simultaneously because it's too much for the users to absorb. They have their own jobs to do. They need to get comfortable with the tool. Once they are comfortable with the tool and they realize that it's helping them as opposed to creating more work, you know, then they, the user adoption starts off as a slow burn, but then turns into, you know, uh, you know, um, you know, greater, wider acceptance across the organization. And that's, you know, I, I think what we've seen is that if you try to load the user community with too much uh, functional capability, you know, they, may, they, they shy away from it. It's, not, it's too much for them to uh, absorb. Great. All right, John. So we talked about uh, approaches for implementation. Let's talk about in this final segment um, about why organizations are moving into this um, direction of using a tool to implement data governance. Right. Right. So there, there are multiple reasons. Um, uh, a lot of organizations that have data governance processes, we we see that those processes are spread across business units. And what I mean to say is that different business units have their own flavor of data governance. So you have um, inconsistent processes. You have uh, maybe processes that are uh, competing with each other. And from from sort of a, a corporate view, they're unable to, you know, even if they had different business units with well-defined, you know, business, you know, governance processes within those units, they find it difficult to aggregate results. Like at the end of the day, what are we doing right in terms of data governance? And it's because, you know, there's a lack of consistency. Um, processes are, you know, in general are, are, are time consuming and prone to human error. Um, they, they don't really lend themselves to um, KPIs that can be bubbled up to, uh, you know, for executive or operational, meaning day-to-day -day type of work. You mean this, you, organizations are moving in this direction uh, for a tool like Calibra so they can get a one-stop shop where they can do get the dashboards for stakeholders right. and for people who are b busy with the operations, they have the, the tool to help them do what, they, what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's a need to bring consistency to the processes and a, a need to bring consistency to uh, reporting, okay? And so that sort of starts with the operational model that we talked about before. There needs to be uh, agreement and adherence to sort of a standardized operating model. And then, you know, the tool itself allows you to, um, you know, in the current state, you have a lot of issues. You have, uh, I'll just rattle off a few. You have data ownership ambiguity. Who owns this data? Who owns this data set? Not really sure. You know, maybe, maybe Sally owns it. You know, who do I, if I need to ask for permission for the data set, who do I go to? Who's the business owner? There's usually significant effort to find the right data, you know, for for analysts or stewards who are doing, you know, data explorers to use the term. If they're if they're looking for data, they're not really sure how to find the right data. It's not it's not well documented. The metadata is not really up to date. Data is copied with no controls, meaning I'm taking a copy, you're taking a copy, whole organizations are taking copies of data, which which is um, redundant. In terms of you know, there's a cost associated with that in terms of time and also infrastructure. Yeah, you don't know where the golden source is, right? There's a there's a lack of agreement on what data is critical. There's no prioritization. There's no methodology to determine what's critical data. And in theory, critical data is used for critical reports, models, and processes. That's something that, especially in a regulatory environment, the regulator uh, regulators are going to want to know what are your critical data elements who's using those critical data elements. 
many times you see local or user-defined data def definitions. So, you know, I'm no lawyer, but I, I, I use this data, you know, for my own special purposes. And I'm going to describe it the way I, I see fit. It might not be the correct way of describing the data. It might not be the legal way of describing data. But that's, a, that's an example of, of user-defined data definitions that need to be, that needs to be handled at more of a corporate level. That, uh, likewise, there's self-attestation of data quality. Like, I'm going to tell you that my data is clean. Like, I'm not really going to explain, you know, what tools or processes I'm using to, to ensure that the data quality is of high standard. But I'm just telling you that I'm, that, that you know, I run my own little macros and I make sure that it's clean before it's And I don't define it. what that clean right. means. Is 90% clean, 95% exactly. clean, 60% clean. Exactly. Right? right. That's a good point. So, so you can basically have data governance to, to, to document um, the agreements between, you know, producers who are who are producing this data and they're kind of testing to the to your point they're testing to the quality of the data that mm -hmm. they're producing there needs to be consistency and standardization across the organization in terms of you know uh what is a critical data element what are the data quality rules you know when you're rolling up when you're aggregating results at the executive level such as data quality issues you know you need to compare apples to apples and unless you have you know, uh, a robust data governance organization with consistent processes and, and hopefully a, an enablement tool like Calibra, which allows you to to uh, make the user experience pretty consistent. Uh, I'm not sure how you're going to be able to aggregate those results effectively. Um, and if you don't have a tool, it's usually very hard to have a, an enterprise view of data issues or even remediation activities. It's one thing to identify data issues, but what are we doing to remediate those issues and which issues are repeating or reoccurring over and over again. Um, and John, so, if you want to talk, uh, you know, for a minute or two about the catalog, um, that you know, what's the use case for catalog, and and how people or organizations are finding it uh, in interesting and increasingly more uh, uh, useful for them to have a catalog. That so, if you want to elaborate on that. Right. So what we're seeing is that the you know the the concept of a business glossary and data dictionaries are sort of merging into a, a data catalog. Data catalog ultimately is where users, um, analysts, maybe data scientists, uh, modelers would go to find you know data sets. You know what's my I'm looking for data sets. I need sort of the business definition of what the data sets or even data elements are, but I also need the uh, the technical metadata to go along with it, and it's a way to um, you know, organize all of your data assets into a central location. Ideally, you'd want to be able to select data assets from like a shopping cart sort of model and to request permission to use those assets. That can be done through workflow flow via Calibra. And then the actual, you know, provisioning of the assets may not happen in Calibra, although Calibra can send maybe a payload to the system that actually does that. It's kind of Amazonification of, yes. of data. right. Okay, and um, so you, you mentioned that you could search uh, the data in the catalog, um, but you also are able to document and tag the data so others can benefit from it. Is, is that what you're seeing that's happening in organizations where data scientists who are spending a lot of time uh, looking for data, right. uh, now they're able to find the data, and then not just to find the data, but they are able to actually add more value to the data by enriching it. So. They can enrich the data. There's also this element of reuse. It takes a long time to find the data you need, and then to uh, and then to sort of uh, massage it into you know rationalize it into the format that you need for for models. 
and once you once you get the data sort of uh, you know uh, reformatted into uh, into the structure you want, I mean, it, there's a great chance that there are others who could use those you know effectively a new data set. So you'd want to be able to retain uh, that combination of data and to uh, apply metadata to it, so others can when they research. Um, the catalog for similar data, you know, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Great. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to Tech Talk to receive the latest episodes.